Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is Robert Buckland. Robert is the Solicitor General for England and Wales, extremely important position uh, in the British government, uh, but he is uh, going to be joining us today to talk about his life, um, his experiences uh, as Solicitor General and the history of that position, and also some thoughts about uh, where we're going in our world today, controversy, and we're just going to see where it goes. Robert Buckland, with respect. So Robert, how are you today? I'm very good. It's a pleasure to be with you, John, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully a, an hour of reflection. All right. Well, this is what we, we... We always start off with this. Where are you from originally? I'm from a place called Llanelli, which is right on the edge of the coalfield of industrial South Wales, uh, an industrial town, a big tin plate town. Mm -hmm. I grew up uh, amongst a forest of chimneys, uh, the horn at five o'clock every night would signal the end of the shift. Mm -hmm. It was very much an industrial working town. And uh, I think part of that is still in the blood. Is, there, is that anywhere near uh, the uh, area where How Green Was My Valley was written? Yeah, it's not the valleys themselves. It's the coastal belt of South Wales. Okay. So near Swansea, in the county of Carmarthenshire, near the beautiful Gower Peninsula... Dylan Thomas country, mm -hmm. very famously, uh, to a lot of your, your listeners. So it's a, it's a wild and beautiful part of the world, but with a, a very strong steel and coal heritage that, mm -hmm. uh, although those industries are gone, it's still very much part of the, uh, the psyche, if you like, of uh, where I'm from and uh, who I am. Okay, well, uh, who are you? That is... Uh how about your parents, your family? Yeah, well, my dad was a high street uh, lawyer. He, uh, he had a practice in uh, that part of the world. And my mum was a, a stay-at-home mum. Uh, and they're still alive, living down there. So um, I'm back as often as I can. Uh, and um, I grew up there, uh, went to school there. Um, and then went to university at Durham in the north of England mm -hmm. uh, and then practised as a lawyer in South Wales for many years prior to my election to the House of Commons. 
Well, let's take, let me take one step back. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do have an elder brother who himself is a lawyer as well. So it's a genetic failing like in my family. <laughs> it does seem that way, doesn't <laughs> it? I don't know about my son. He's already expressed alarming proclivities to want oh, to go no. into the law, I know, despite my best attempts to persuade him otherwise. All right. So uh, married and children? Yeah, that's right. My wife, Sean, is, uh, 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 we've been married now over 20 years, and we've got twin children, a son and a daughter. I hate to ask this question, but is your wife a barrister? No, she's not a lawyer. Okay. I always said to myself, I made a mental note, never marry a lawyer. That's right. Uh, however, I've never won an argument with her, and I don't <laughs> think I ever will. <laughs> that shows extreme intelligence on your part. Yeah, I think I know when to pick my battles. And, That's right. uh, I'd rather have a quiet life at home than mm-hmm. uh, another uh, battlefield, if you like. Uh, my father told me the same thing. She said, he said, never marry a lawyer because there's always a competition. Now, I've seen situations in my offices that I've run and my experience in the law where that doesn't work. That isn't true. That is, they can get along very well. But often, if not exclusively, they have to be in different kinds of practices, uh, different areas of the law, because otherwise the competition part, especially for trial lawyers is really uh, a genetic and dangerous thing. Yeah, that's right. I've seen it myself. I've seen quite a few marriages fail on that basis. Mm -hmm. There's one set of friends of mine where it's working, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I think they have a particular way of dealing with it, which I do admire. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think from my point of view, I just think having somebody who isn't in the law actually reminds me of, of the wider world uh, and actually gives me a different outlook, which mm-hmm. I think is actually makes me better, makes me stronger. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of our recent guests uh, is an archaeologist, and he uh, taught at the University of Durham for a number of years. Oh, yes. And has just come back to the, uh, to the States and is now teaching in, the, in his college uh, in the Midwest. But anyway, he speaks very fondly of the University of Durham. Wonderful place. It's an historic city. It has a Norman cathedral, nearly a thousand years old. The castle at Durham is the oldest inhabited uh, castle in the world. It's the oldest university building in the world. For those listeners who enjoy Harry Potter, a lot of the scenes in Harry Potter are filmed at Durham. The cloisters at Durham are a very important part of the films. And in the first Harry Potter film, where he gets the Philosopher's Stone, that's the Norman Crypt Chapel at Durham Castle. So it's a it's a it's a it's a world heritage site, and it's certainly a place that's well worth visiting. Um, I remember when I first went to London many 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 years ago, probably before you were born. I was uh, enthralled at the intersection of history and culture and law and um, and modern life and and I I love London and I love <coughs> pardon me, I love London and I loved uh, those other parts of, of uh, the great British Isles that I've been to the one part I have not been to uh, is Northern Ireland uh, but I have been to the Republic but this is what I'm leading into and that is <coughs> there are different cultures that you have in different parts of the British Isles and the Welsh culture is different than the British, the English culture, yes. and which is also different than the Scottish culture, and certainly you add to that the Northern Ireland culture. Very much so. I mean, Wales has its own language, which is spoken by a minority of the population, about three million people in Wales, and uh, about a sixth of the population speak 
Welsh. Mm -hmm. uh, it's concentrated in various parts of the country. But even if you don't speak Welsh, there's a sense of nationhood, identity, uh, which is very powerful. Culturally, it's strong. There's, of course, political differences. Some of my compatriots want independence. I don't believe in that. And, but the same will apply in Scotland uh, and in Northern Ireland as well. Um, and it's those tensions and debates that we have within the British Union that can make politics, you know, sadly at times, it made politics a very difficult thing. But, you know, I'm a unionist. I believe in the British Union. Mm -hmm. And I see no conflict between being a pro-Welshman but also being a very pro-Brit as well. Mm -hmm. One of the... Cat one of the um this, this may not seem to, uh, to people as uh, really important, but I think it is actually, that uh, the Welsh have a great tradition of choral singing. And it is a unifying factor in what I have seen of Welsh culture is that people can identify uh, with the beauty of the human voice. Is that true? Well, I think so. I think um, uh, choral singing is still popular in Wales. I think it was associated very much with uh, church or chapel, actually. The non-conformist tradition in Wales was, was very strong, and I'm afraid I'm using the operative word was because I've seen a, quite a precipitous decline in chapel attendance mm. in Wales. I mean, church attendance has been in decline, but chapel attendance has been in free fall. And I think, therefore, some of the ties that bind, that bound people together have loosened. However, there's a folk memory and a folk awareness about the communality of singing. So at rugby matches, you know, rugby is the great sport of Wales. Mm -hmm. Singing is very, uh, an, very much an important part of being the part of the, 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 the sport. Uh, you know, singing on the terrace is a big thing. And therefore, it's still very much part of the folk memory of Wales, this idea that we are a musical nation. Uh, and therefore, it, one of the ways we express ourselves is through song. Mm -hmm. How does this play out in this, <clears throat> the differences between the four cultures, if you will? And I'm, I'm really simplifying this. I mean, there are many, many more cultures. You could always talk about London being a sub subculture, very much, very much so. and uh, the North being of, of uh, whether mm. it's Scotland or, or mm. uh, the, the uh, um, York or whatnot, mm. <clears throat> is another culture. But how would you, if you had to pick? Um, a way of describing each of them. Is there a way of doing that? I think it's very difficult to sum it up, really, without falling into racial stereotype. Mm -hmm. um, I think what, I, what you can say is that when you're in each part, each one of the four nations of um, Britain, you know you're, you're there mm -hmm. because there'll be something about that uh, environment that marks it out as different. So whether it's the language and the bilingual signs of Wales whether it's the uh, particular civic and legal identity of Scotland, which has always had a separate legal system and a separate mm -hmm. court system, or whether in Northern Ireland it's, um, it's that sense that, um, uh, that you've got a, a part of the country that has had to be governed in a different way because of the sectarian issues mm -hmm. that have bedeviled, bedeviled it, um, then you do get a sense that... Um, uh, whilst you might be in the United Kingdom, there's a diversity there, which um, which is huge, actually. Now we've had uh, in the political realm a test of that um, about uh, what, three or four years ago, where there was a plebiscite in Scotland mm. as to whether or not they wanted to stay a part of the British uh, 
entity, yes. political entity. Um, and it turned out that a percentage, um, a substantial percentage, wanted to stay in the union. And um, but it created, I think it was one of the highest voter turnouts in Scotland. It was an enormous turnout. I think it was not just short of 80%. It was a very big turnout. And 16-year-olds were given the vote for the first time in that very important referendum. I remember I was, I'd been a few months in as Solicitor General then, and I came in very early to the office in London because if the vote had gone the other way, we would have had some constitutional conundrums to mm -hmm. work out there and then about the, the status of the British government law officer for Scotland, about what it would mean in terms of legislation, how you'd unpick the union, a lot of legal conundrums for my team and I to look at. You can imagine my relief when at about 6 or 6.30 in the morning we realised the vote was 55% to 45% mm -hmm. and that the union was preserved. And I, as a Conservative and Unionist, that's the full name of my party, uh, you know, did a little mental jump for joy mm -hmm. when that result came through. And I very much hope that we're not going to return to it any time soon. Well, there is, there is that... Um, uh, uh, Movement in, in some parts of Scotland to revisit that vote again in uh, conjunction with or as a result of the Brexit issue. But we're going to come, come back to that later on. At this point, I want to take a break um, and tell everybody that we're talking to Robert Buckland, who is the Solicitor General of England and Wales, and he is visiting the United States at a conference for former United States attorneys down in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had a chance to sit down with him and to talk about some fascinating issues that he raised in our, in our uh, meeting, uh, but also that we've developed in, in chatting with each other. This is John Smetanka, run with respect, and we'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Robert Buckland. Robert is the Solicitor General of England and Wales. And now we're going to task him with telling us what this title and those responsibilities are. This is John Smetanka on With Respect. Well, it's a very ancient title, John. It goes back about five centuries. And originally, the Solicitor General, together with the Attorney General, was one of the two law officers to the monarch, to the crown of England, uh, who would advise the, the monarch and the government about the conduct of business and would conduct 
cases, litigation for uh, the king or the queen at the time uh, in the courts. Mm -hmm. Originally, the Solicitor General uh, had uh, his own private practice uh, and would therefore uh, you know, only do the job when needed, but always as a member of Parliament mm. or a member of the House of Lords, usually a member of the House of Commons. Um, and that tradition has persisted to this day. So I'm not just the Solicitor General, I'm also a member of the Commons, I'm an MP. Uh, I am a minister, like any other minister in the government. So I have this strange sort of hybrid role where I still perform the role of legal advisor with all that that, that means, that all of that connotes in terms of independence and giving legal advice at arm's length and having a lawyer-client relationship with the government. But I also have ministerial responsibilities for the prosecution service, the Crown Prosecution Service of England and Wales, and the Serious Fraud Office, and I answer questions on their behalf in Parliament to MPs of all parties who might have issues to raise about their performance. So it's quite a mixed role of law and politics. What I really enjoy as well is two things. One, going to court to do cases on behalf of the government, particularly in the realm of criminal sentencing, which was one of my specialities as a barrister. And secondly, the conduct of legislation through Parliament. I've taken four bills through the House of Commons myself, all of which have got through, uh, and most notably I took through the EU withdrawal bill only a few months ago, one of the biggest pieces of constitutional change that the country's seen in 50 years. Now, you said the EU withdrawal bill. Do I sense that's related to Brexit? It certainly is. It's the legal framework, the legal basis for Brexit. All right. Many of my uh, audience know about Brexit, but some may not. What is Brexit? Well, Brexit was a, as a result of a referendum, another referendum, mm -hmm. uh, held across the UK in June 2016, where the question was, should we remain or leave the EU? The decision was made to leave by a majority of about 4%, 52 to 48%. Uh, and as a result of that, the government then uh, has moved forward and made the necessary arrangements with the EU to trigger the process of withdrawal. And the process of withdrawal under Article 50 of the relevant treaty uh, takes two years. And the clock's been ticking now since March of 2017 when we got press the button and pass the law to start the process, uh, and we leave the EU at 11pm on the 29th of March 2019. This is not something that has gone away as far as the people of the United Kingdom. There is, uh, I, I tell you, we've talked about this, there are friends of mine on both sides of the Brexit issue. Should they be leaving? Should they not? And it's intense. It was extremely intense during the uh, run-up to the, uh, to the uh, referendum, but it remains even now uh, an, an area of, of great controversy. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, it does. It uh, remains as a, an issue that divides people. Uh, I think what we're getting... I mean, I was a big Remainer. I campaigned very heavily for Remain. Um, and uh, I, I conducted a lot of public debates, but I always said that I would abide by the result. And much as I didn't want the result to happen, I'm a Democrat. Uh, and if you believe in democracy, then you, I think, are on a bone to fulfil it and carry it through. Um, I'm not critical of my friends who still want to remain and want another vote, 
But I say to them that, you know, we had that vote. We campaigned, you know, a lot of us campaigned very hard to remain. Um, what if the boot was on the other foot? What would they be saying to the people who mm. you know, wanted to leave, who perhaps wanted another run? They'd be steadfastly saying no. Mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be, with respect, a greater degree of objectivity about this now and a sense that if we are to retain faith in democracy, which to me is, you know, it's everything. It underpins the rule of law. It, it, it underpins everything that I think makes the, you know, my country and the system of government work then I think we have to abide by the result, carry it through, and develop Brexit in a way that you know, will work well for our industry and our citizens. Um, and, and that's what I'm trying to do in the work uh, that I've been given in government. We're going to come back to that, but I want to continue with your description of the role of the Solicitor General in British government. Well, as I was saying to you, we've got this mixed role of law and politics, uh, but... I have other roles as well. Uh, I'm, uh, together with the Attorney General, we're the guardians of the public interest, which mean, means a whole host of duties with responsibility for charity law, uh, for example, uh, the signing of royal charters, which are uh, instruments that are signed by the Queen, by the Crown, uh, to incorporate associations, whether it's the MCC, the BBC, or some of the famous livery companies of the City of London. Uh, and those powers are... Um, uh, ancient powers that emanate from the what we call the royal prerogative, the crown power, which still uh, has a residual importance in uh, governmental life in Britain. Um, and also, um, as I was saying to you, I have a role in criminal litigation and in the not just sentencing and the referral of cases that I think, uh, where I think the judge has made an, a clear error of law to the Court of Appeal, but also in the granting of consent for certain types of serious prosecution case, usually cases of terrorism with a foreign element or uh, conspiracy where there's an extraterritorial aspect or explosives offence uh, or an offence involving air trespass on royal property. Those are cases that I have to consider and give my consent or withhold my consent to prosecution for. But I was saying about criminal sentencing, that's one of the Uh, parts of the role I really uh, take greater satisfaction from because uh, it's an unusual power for a politician, a lawyer politician, to be able to, in effect, ask the Court of Appeal to look again at a judge's sentence. But in about 180 cases a year, that is precisely what I do. And then it's up to the Court of Appeal judges to decide whether they agree with me or not. I go myself quite a lot to present my own cases, I win some, I lose some, but the point is I'm trying to clarify the law to make it easier for future courts to interpret, to get those sentences in a consistent place, and in particular where the offence might be a new offence, that the judges understand what their sentencing parameters are. So that's an important legal function. And there's an international dimension. Only last month I was in The Hague doing a case in front of the International Court of Justice a dispute that we have with the government of Mauritius about the ownership of the Chagas Islands, uh, a little-known archipelago south of India, which probably is better known as the home of Diego Garcia, Mm. which is the listening station that is leased by the United States from the UK, and which is an important part of our global fight against terror and our global um, security Mm -hmm. network. Uh, So an important advisory case... Uh, I presented uh, and led for the UK. 
uh, and the judgment is due in March. So uh, quite a while to wait, but we're hopeful that uh, uh, it will go our way. The International Court of Justice fits in to this Brexit concept in sort of an unusual way. Mm. Uh, it, 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 my, my observation from uh, looking and listening uh, to my friends in Britain and the, mm. their lawyers or otherwise is this organization called the International Court of Justice can be a uh, positive or a negative thing as far as Brits view the law. Well, that's right. And I, I think there's a misunderstanding here because, of course, there are several institutions. Mm -hmm. The one that we're leaving is the EU. And the, the court of the EU is the is Court of Justice of the European Union mm. that sits in Luxembourg. Mm. That's a separate institution from the European Court of Human Rights that sits in Strasbourg, mm -hmm. of which we, well, we, we, we wrote the convention after the war, mm -hmm. uh, and we incorporated it, and now it's become part of our domestic law about 20 years ago. We're not leaving that. That's, that remains. And then the International Court of Justice, which of course stems from the United Nations and our commitment to a membership of that important organization that you know, the United States and us and uh, you know, the, the leading nations of the world came together in San Francisco to found. Uh, you know, that's an important part of the international rules-based system that I think countries like Britain have a duty to support and uphold. So we're not withdrawing from the world. Brexit does not mean isolationism. In fact, it must mean and has to mean the opposite, in my view. Uh, uh, what Britain now has to do uh, is to redouble its efforts to look outward and to, uh, uh, as we say, become a truly global Britain uh, mm -hmm. with interests and relationships all over the world. And those relationships that we, we talk about uh, that are most raised uh, when the debate occurs over here is economics. That is, the, whether or not when Britain leaves the EU in uh, 2019, whether or not there will be a continuing economic relationship that is tariffs, uh, and uh, borders and hard borders yeah. and soft borders and all of that are built into this concept of we want to be alone, probably we want to be separate from the EU, but we're not alone. Correct. How does that play together? I mean, you, you, you're not, I'm not asking you to talk about the economic part of this, but you started to raise this issue of you still want to be a force, a major force, which you always have been. I mean, the, the, the British um, sense of justice and system of justice today is still uh, one, of the, one of the primary um, bonds that holds people together. I mean, for example, uh, you have the Commonwealth, which was the residual from the, uh, the British Empire. I, when I was in London and, and, and working in Middle Temple, and I saw uh, people of all different persuasions, black, white, green, blue, all different races, countries, and they come to Britain to uh, learn the system. They become barristers often or solicitors then go back to their mm. countries, mm. and they play prominent roles in how the, their governments work and their societies work. But they learn 
from the, from the British seat of justice. And that's been the case for generations. I mean, Gandhi and Nehru were members of the Inns of Court in London. They learnt their legal practice in London, and it's continuing to this day. Only last month I called to the bar a young Cypriot lawyer. She uh, um, uh, is going to practice in Cyprus. We uh, discussed her application over Skype. Uh, I was more than happy to endorse her suitability to become a member of the Bar of England and Wales, but I know that she will add an international dimension uh, the continuing tradition of, of London being an international centre goes on. And I think you know, there's one thing to withdraw at a governmental level from an institution, a mm-hmm. one institution. It's totally another thing to then, you know, change the culture and to somehow pull away from our international outlook. You know, the, the professions themselves have ties all over the world. Uh, our business and commercial life means we have ties all over the world. Our, our uh, family and intergenerational interrelationships mean that we have links all over the world. Um, that's not going to change. In fact, if anything, I can only see that grow um, as the years go by because the world continues to shrink uh, and we become more interdependent uh, than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I learned when I was... Uh, I teach in Europe. I teach in the Czech and Slovak republics ah. uh, to lawyers and judges every year uh, talking about the American... Uh, and common law system and how it plays out, how ethics works, how rule of law works, and how the, the, um, the, uh, the differences uh, between European law and American law and how it affects the culture. Um, we even play movies that, uh, that highlight uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yes. talks about how race relations in the South uh, were um, a vivid integral part of the stories of, of so many people. And just that's just for one example. But but in that process I learned that we are all of one tradition, which it comes out whether it's people in the Commonwealth or people in the States or in Canada or the common law tradition. Hugely important, binding together the English-speaking peoples across mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. and something that I think is not just powerful for those of us who live within it, but also powerful a powerful beacon, if you like, to other countries that might aspire to it. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, somehow, let's say, a country that doesn't have an adversarial system is somehow less well-governed. But what I do think is that there are attributes that exist in our system that help to guarantee fairness and justice in a way that perhaps, um, should we say, an inquisitorial system where the judge will lead the investigation, do the gathering of facts and make the ultimate decision alone. It doesn't quite cut as far as I'm concerned. We're going to take a break and we're going to come right back to that thought because I have some additional thoughts on that. This is John Smutanker. We're on With Respect, and we've been talking to Robert Buckland, who is the Solicitor General for England and Wales. We've been talking about uh, his life and his work, but it's um, so vast we could almost do three or four shows. But we're going to uh, take a break right now, and we'll be right back.
We're now back and with respect with uh, Robert Buckland. Buckland, I'm sorry. I said, what did I say? Did I screw that up? Yeah. It's Robert Buckland. Yeah, you need to call me Robert Borkland. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Which is fine because he was a great SG. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he was an SG, that's right. Robert Bork in the, uh, back in the Nixon administration. Now, uh, as I said, this is John Smutankin. We're talking with uh, Robert about his position as Solicitor General of England and Wales. And we've been intermixing how the common law, how Brexit, how his responsibilities as Solicitor General kind of uh, are all interrelated. And it's hard to, pair, to take one uh, thread out of that uh, Gordian knot and, uh, yes. and isolate it. But I teach in, in Europe. I teach uh, on the continent. I've been doing this since 2001. Um, I'm, I'm teaching people who are raised in the continental system or the Napoleonic system, yes. the, the civil the code. code, yes, and they they have a different way of proceeding, and this was true whether it was under Napoleon or uh, the, uh, the Czech Re Czechoslovak Republic before the communists came in, and it's even while the uh, the Russians uh, were the dominant uh, political and legal influence in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, but the this system where it's called inquisitorial. That is, the judge uh, acts as judge, police officer, so to speak. That's he finds the facts, does the investigation, yeah. and then the parties are basically there to listen to what the judge has found. And I've talked to many of my students, uh, of the hundreds we've, we've taught over the years, and they, when they come to either Britain or to the United States, they are flabbergasted by two things. One is that the lawyers in, I'm going to take America, but I know it's true of Britain as well, have differing roles than they do in the Czech and the Eastern European countries. And that is they actually do the questioning. And the judge is there not as the, the inquisitor, but rather as the referee. Yes between these two conflicting parties, because we have this idea that from conflict, uh, where uh, two sides probe the testimony or the, the relationship of documents and reality to, to uh, testimony, how that concept of cross-examination by the parties themselves, generally um, supervised by the judge, has a great ability to get to the truth. I think so. You know, and I, I was a litigator for nearly 20 years before I became an MP, and I sat as a part-time judge as well in the Crown Court in the UK that deals with the more serious criminal offences. And, 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 and importantly, the jury, the 12 men and women who were randomly selected from the local populace, not lawyers, but there to listen to the facts and assess the case and you know, apply the high standard of proof that exists uh, to be uh, beyond reasonable doubt uh, uh, whether or not somebody was guilty. I think all those safeguards make the system... What did Churchill say about parliamentary democracy? It's the worst system yet invented apart from all the others. <laughs> and I think that is the jury system. Mm -hmm. You know, it ain't perfect. It'll throw up some anomalies. Mm -hmm. But I think when you look at it, it's tried and tested, and it doesn't vest all the power in one person. 
Now, there are subtle differences. I mean, in the UK, uh, you know, the lawyers tend not to be usually involved in the investigation uh, and don't play much of a role in directing the investigation in England and Wales. But um, uh, if, when it comes to serious fraud, we have a different system whereby the lawyers and the investigators sit together mm-hmm. and work through the case mm-hmm. so that the investigation is much more legally directed. And, you know, the older I get, the longer in the tooth I get, John, the more attracted I am by that approach to prosecution. Which is the system that I grew up with in, in, in America. Yeah. That is where, um, especially at the federal level, but also very much at the state level, the prosecutor works with the investigator to define what it is that's necessary to be proven in court, how you go about proving it, and then the police officer uh, is um, there in the court to assist the prosecutor in presentation of the case. Mm. And this uh, symbiotic relationship uh, has its benefits, great benefits, I think, has some detriments yeah. in that if often there is, uh, uh, there, often, sometimes there are police officers who take it upon themselves to see that a person is convicted willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. And it's the responsibility of the prosecutor to, ref- to care- be careful of that and to refine the goals of the police to the extent that they vary from getting to true justice, that is the right thing yes. under the law and facts. And I speak, as my audience knows, from 25 years in prosecution, now 20 years in, uh, in defense. And I, I deal with cases in which uh, four of my clients, um, we were able to show, did not commit the crime mm-hmm. for which they spent from 14 to 32 years in prison. And they were absolutely, totally innocent, factually innocent. I'm not talking about technicalities. I'm talking about they just didn't do it. And so one of the things that I've now become much more concerned about is making sure that in that very small percentage of the cases where a a person is falsely convicted, factually, didn't do it, uh, that there be some sort of remedy so that they don't have to spend the rest of their lives or even five minutes in a jail when they don't deserve to be. And this is a new area developing uh, in the status of the law and uh, the practice of law uh, in the United States, uh, somewhat uh, uh, popularized by the Innocence Projects that exist around the country. Many universities, many law schools, uh, maybe private groups of lawyers are working in this area. And I've I've heard it estimated by one of the persons who is most in favor of getting to the bottom of wrongful convictions, that at best there's 4% of the people who are uh, in prison, for example, who have been falsely convicted factually, uh, which is maybe a tribute to the fact that 96%, that 96%, uh, there was a proper process mm. that worked well. Mm. But at any rate, um, so this concept here that you're working on, this interaction between prosecutors and defense, often I think is a great benefit 
uh, to the system, to the integrity of the system? Well, I think so, John. I mean, I spent a lot of my time prosecuting, but I also defended a lot. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a real sense of objectivity. A prosecutor is a minister of justice. And it's not about winning or losing. It's about proving a case. And if you can't prove the case, well, so be it. Justice Mm -hmm. has taken its course. It might be bitter, it might be hard personally, after all the work that's been put into a case, Mm -hmm. but one should never look at it through that lens. And that's why I think that increasingly we're seeing in England and Wales on serious sexual cases and other types of serious crime, a collaboration between police and prosecutors at an earlier stage, which I think is good. But we mustn't lose sight of the independence of the prosecutor, their role to the court, their duty to the court, and this phrase, being a minister of justice, which I think is at the heart of everything that, uh, frankly, all lawyers should be Mm -hmm. responsible uh, for, uh, because we owe a duty to justice, uh, to get it right, to um, uh, be truthful, uh, and to be be open with the court uh, in a way that means that... um, justice is actually seen to be done. Mm-hmm. I always said that there was two aspects of the court system that were critical for its success. The first, I said, is that if the, the, there must be um, a very high percentage of the cases that go through the court that are properly handled, that is, that mm. the, the process works uh, and it, in fact, as opposed to what even what the public thinks. Yeah. But the second part is just the other side of the coin, and that is it must be seen by the public whose, first of all, whose tax dollars are paying for this, number one. Yeah. Number two, who have a right as citizens of the UK or the United States to see that just there is a place to get crimes or conflicts, family conflicts or whatever it is, solved fairly, they must perceive that that this is a place you can go where you get justice. And that fairness, the appearance of fairness together with the reality is is critical. And if you fail on either one of them, your system fails. Well, I entirely agree. I mean, we we haven't dealt with the elephant in the room, which is the gap between the number of crimes reported and the number of cases that actually get to trial. That's still a big gap. Uh, that's for a variety of reasons. It's usually because um, you know, there just hasn't been the gathering of evidence. And that's because it, you know, some of these cases are very difficult to prove. And you have to apply a strict test on prosecution. Is there a realistic prospect of conviction? And is it in the public interest to do so? You know, not every case is going to meet that test. Um, uh, that does worry me, though, because uh, that can lead to a cynicism and a lack of faith in the system. And I hear it very said very often, you know, that it doesn't, it doesn't seem that the reach of the law is long enough or far enough. But yet in the UK, we prosecute about 80,000 cases a year in the Crown Court, plus the, you know, thousands more, the tens of thousands more that appear in the lower courts. So we are still, as a society, prosecuting hundreds of thousands of people every year for a range of offences from the most minor traffic offence right up to murder Um, and the system is under pressure 
uh, uh, there's no doubt about that. I, you know, we, we had to make some tough choices as a government when we came in after the economic crash of 09, 08, 09. And uh, some of the uh, uh, cutbacks in expenditure in the Ministry of Justice in the UK were pretty severe. Um, but having said that, um, I'm still seeing you know, cases being brought forward in the right way, uh, juries making decisions and people going to prison for sometimes a long time. And our prison population in the UK is about 80,000 at the moment, which is close to its historic high. Um, so, you know, it, it, it would be wrong to say that the system is broken. Uh, it might be under pressure, but I do not believe that it is broken. We're going to take a bright break right now, but when we come back, I want to give you some numbers that I remember from when I first went over to Britain about violent crime and uh, uh, bounce this off of you as to mm. whether this is true today. Okay. Uh, this is John Spontanker. We're talking to Robert Buckland, who is the Solicitor General of England and Wales, and it has been our guest because of the courtesy of the National Association of Former United States Attorneys, uh, where he described his uh, role in dealing with serious financial uh, offenses. Uh, I'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Robert Buckland, who is the Solicitor General of England and Wales. Uh, this is John Smetanka. Now, when we broke, I said I was going to tease you with violent crime statistics. One of the things that I was amazed at when I was first in England in 73 was that the, and I don't, like, all I can say, these are government statistics, mm. and I, I, I know that uh, statistics never lie, but statisticians mm. often do. Yeah. The population of the UK at that time was around 60 million. They had, in the year before, that would be 1972, they had 90, 90 homicides. Let me try that again. Mm. 60 million people, 90 homicides. Now, in the United States at that time, the major cities of the United States had that statistic in the first quarter of a year. And we have been struggling with this comparison. Um, I know that when I go over and I hear my British friends talk about gun control, my Australian friends talk about gun control, that this is the solution, if he just had gun control. I'm not convinced that that's the whole story. Uh, it may be that people would stab each other or whatever. I'm just being mm. facetious about mm. it. 
But um, what if, what's the status now in the UK? Well, I don't have the figures off the top of my head. I know that the numbers have increased. The population is probably about 63 million at the moment. Mm-hmm. Numbers of homicides have definitely increased. We have gone through a period of very sustained decline in serious violence, actually, for about the last 10 years or more. We've seen a, quite a steep decline in incidences. We've had a bit of a spike recently, though, and that is really to do with knife crime. We have a particular issue about the use of knives in the capital, uh, but only in certain pockets, certain communities, certain areas. And the causes of knife crime are complex. Some of them are related to gang culture and the, you know, the subculture of the uh, misuse and sale of drugs, the money that, that is, is involved in all of that, and then the, the nature of you know, why knives are used in order to to emphasise the control of a particular gang. But also, out of London, we've had a rise in knife crime. That, I think, is more difficult to explain. A lot of it's due to isolation. Uh, Youngsters who are perhaps, you know, for whatever reason, frightened and who arm themselves to protect themselves as a defensive weapon with a knife. And I've seen it so many times, John. You know, knives brought to a scene by the victim fall out of the coat or the pocket and are then used against the person mm. who's brought the knife to the fight. Mm. You know, it's, it's a common and um, sad story. So we at the moment are taking measures to deal with knife crime. We're toughening the law. We are also looking at knife crime as a health issue. We think that um, more can be done uh, with our health agencies and our you know, local agencies to work together to move young people off the path towards gangs and knives, to identify those young people who might be at risk of, uh, you know, that sort of crime, to get them away from those influences in the first place. So prevention is, I think, going to be the best form of cure here. I, I think with crime, one can never totally predict trends, because coupled to this spike, we also have the inevitable rise in online crime, cybercrime, financial crime committed via the internet, the true scale of which I don't think is yet fully fathomed. What I'm clear about is that very soon that type of crime is going to tip over from being a a question of actuarial insurance adjustment, which is how a lot of the banks and institutions seem to treat it, to becoming a real problem in terms of loss. And I expect and I would hope to see the financial services industry do more to design out fraud. Just as we, 25 years ago in the UK, designed out car crime by making locks impenetrable to open and improving car security, then I think we've got to go the same way with the financial services industry. Um, you know, I feel sometimes with crime, it's like whacking a mole. You, you, one pops up, as soon as you've dealt with that one, another problem pops up. The thing is, you've just got to keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've mm-hmm. got to keep be relentless about how you work. And it's not about being tough, though that's important in terms of public protection. And long sentences are often demanded for serious crime. And I, you know, with my sentencing role, I do that. You've got to be smart. And being smart means prevention as the best form of cure. One of the things that um, I, when I, was, when I was in Washington with the, uh, the, the main justice, we call it, um, 
I called together a task force of investigative agents from around the uh, federal government and I, I said, look, we've just come through the savings and loan crisis and we were caught unawares, but let's try together to come up with the next big crisis that's coming up. Mm. And so I, I said, everybody go back to your agencies. This is IRS and every investigative agency that we had. And I said, come back to us in this group uh, in, in a month and tell us what are the crimes that you anticipate are going to be the big ones in five years or 10 years. And the interesting thing was that they came back with two areas that I can't even say whether you know statistics will bear this out, but the two one of the two of the areas, two of the main areas, uh, were insurance fraud mm -hmm. and pension fraud. And I thought, and probably, and the third one was healthcare fraud. Mm -hmm. Those are the three prime. This included agencies which dealt with drugs, agencies which dealt with violent crime, like the FBI, and all around the table, they basically came back to those three things, and they talk. They're, they're all talking about what you just talked about, which is how do we deal with money and and uh, benefits from the government and 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 cheating each other. Yeah. Well, I think the answer is designing out the opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm particularly impressed with, um, there's a building society, you know, a mutual in my constituency called Nationwide. It's the biggest in Britain. It's a huge organisation. Mm -hmm. And it's already got special measures to help vulnerable clients, people who might have a terminal illness or mm -hmm. who need care, who have dedicated telephone operators to help them with their accounts. So they know that if they're getting a cold call, it's going to be bogus. Mm. It's not going to be mm -hmm. something that they mm -hmm. will trust. They know that they've got Veronica or Deirdre, whoever it is, who is their person, who they talk to about their money. And anybody else who rings up asking for details is an imposter. Now, it's that sort of approach that I think we're going to have to see more and more of. Mm -hmm. We're running out of time, and this has been so interesting, but I've, I've got to go back and say to ask... Do you have a future? Now I'm going to talk. I want to go back, and you talked about this office going back to the 1500s. Has it always been a secure place that you can go on to greatness from the Solicitor General's office? Well, many people have. Uh, even Prime Ministers have been Solicitors General. Um, I've been in office now for over four years, which is quite a lengthy tenure in the modern era. Um, but my position is within the gift of the Prime Minister, and it'll be up to her to decide what I do next, if anything at all. Um, I've survived many a reshuffle so far, so uh, I'm sure another one will be along soon, and let's see what that might bring. I what hope about your predecessors now? I'm, I, yeah. you, you told us about some of your predecessors yeah. who played roles, but it didn't quite turn out like they were promised. No, indeed. Um, I think the, the, the one that really comes home to me is um, um, uh, the, 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 the John Cook, who was Solicitor General at the time of the uh, execution of Charles I. He was the guy who actually did the trial. He read the indictment to the king, who didn't like what he was hearing, tried to interrupt quite roughly, actually, banged Cook with his cane to get him to sit down, but Cook carried on reading the high treason charge out to the king. Uh, the king, as we know, was executed. Uh, Cook then paid for it 
uh, later on when the uh, restoration occurred and Charles II took the throne. He was then charged with high treason, convicted and hanged, drawn and quartered, which was a bit unfortunate, especially as his predecessor, Edmund Prido, who had been Solicitor General, seeing the trial coming up, dodged the ball by resigning and then came back as Attorney General after the King's execution. And he went on for years and died in his bed. So there was no moral tale, really, uh, from, from all of that. Yes, there is. Life is not fair. <laughs> that is true. The other one I love, which, which, which I didn't tell you uh, in the conference, was Sir Richard Rich, who was Solicitor General. Uh, he gave perjured evidence against Sir Thomas More uh, and went on to become Lord Chancellor and died a very wealthy man. Uh, paid no comp- price in this earth, though uh, he might be um, in the seventh circle of hell if Dante's uh, vision right. is true. The icebox. Yeah. That's what it is. The coldest part of hell was the seventh circle rim down. It was the, 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 the ice, icy lake. That's right. But uh, it's interesting you mentioned Sir Rich Rich, Richie Rich, because two things. In American culture, we have cartoons with a young kid called Richie mm, Rich. I'm aware. But the other one was in the great play A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt. Uh, he plays an interesting role. He does. And... One of the great things that, that um, we in litigation in America, at least I did, uh, used to go back to was in Bolt's words. He was talking to his son-in-law, and he wanted, and the son-in-law wanted to go out and to rip down and tear out and kill all the bad people, all the people who didn't agree right. uh, with him. And he said, the question was, so, Roper. That's right, Roper. Would you eliminate all the laws of England to get at the devil? And Roper said, yes, this is a son law. Yes, I would rip them out, I would just tear them all down to get at evil and get at the devil. And, and Moore's paraphrasing, Moore said, and where would you go when all the laws of England are laid low and the devil turns around and comes after you? Who will defend you under what law. Exactly, exactly. And that's a, a powerful message, a message for all seasons. It is a message for all seasons. So, um, as I say, we've taken uh, a good bit of your time, and we thank you very much. It's been fascinating talking to you about, uh, about the, the world that we're going into and the world we're, we're leaving behind and the history. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. We've been talking to Robert Buckland, Uh, the Solicitor General of England and Wales. Remember, we're on every week. And until next week, remember our mantra. If you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.